If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. Chapter 18. Ben watched the ship in the harbor being unloaded and cursed his luck. Lucas had a fast ship, but even with a day's delay Ben's vessel had managed to catch up. To his surprise, his crew had utterly refused to attack the vessel, pointing out that they were outgunned three to one. Instead they had insisted that they drop back and follow the Spanish ship until it made port, so they had followed Senor Lucas at a distance, shadowing him until his ship moored at a private landing hidden among the marshes and swamps of the Spanish colonial mainland, Ben ordered a dinghy put into the water upon his arrival. The men had drawn lots to see who would accompany him. Now five men crouched with him in the reeds watching half-dressed Indians and Negroes unload crates and barrels onto the wharf. Sunset painted the scene in red and amber. Lucas has left the ship said Ben, he slipped back and let the reeds fall back into place. He turned to find his landing party, muddy and wide-eyed, behind him. He will have taken Corwin to his house. He will not expect anyone to rescue her. It should not be difficult to reach his home undetected. Begging your pardon, Saul, said one of the men, a heavy-set dark-haired man with no front teeth. The Spaniard keeps cane, and slaves to cut it. He will have guards to mind them. I am sure we can slip past them. Pardon, Saul. We did not sign to fight, but to sail. Is this mutiny? Ben looked at each man in turn. Nay, Saul, this be dry land. We come this far from respect, but we will go no more. You will not help me? Not one man among you will help me, I tell you this before God. Were it the wife, daughter or sister of any man here I would join with him to save her. Aye, and we know it. And so we have come so far. The man looked around at his compatriots. And we can stay the night here. If ye can bring her this far on your own. We will take her to the ship. And if I cannot bring her this far by morning, what then? We make for the ship and sail for Virginia. All the men nodded their assent. Ben studied their faces carefully in the moonlight and saw he had no quarter. They would not risk their lives to help him. If he meant to effect a rescue he would have to do it alone. Wait here until noon tomorrow. If I do not return, you may have my ship since you will have already taken my life. Ben made no attempt to conceal his contempt. Dawn if you please saw said the spokesman. We will sail with the tide. Thus after three hours of creeping through tall grass and sugar cane, Ben found himself alone near the dozen or more structures that comprised the plantation. It was clear, now that he could see it for himself, why his crew had refused to come with him. Dogs prowled the cleared earth around the buildings while men sat watch around campfires, a sprawling house, the only structure he suspected a regional governor might occupy, was five hundred yards away, on the far side of the clearing. It would be hard to approach it undetected, Ben kept his blade raised as he crept from the dense cane to the nearest structure. Once there he put his back against the wall of crude earth and bricks, listened hard for some sound that might indicate that he had been detected. 
He almost leapt out of his skin when he heard someone from inside the building call out. When nothing followed the call, he moved to peer around the corner at the front of the structure. There he found a dozen half-height doors barred with thick stalks of cane. He heard the voice again, this time followed by a racking cough. These must be the slave quarters, he thought grimly, and someone inside the nearest cell must be ill. When his pulse slowed somewhat, he realized that a solution to his problem stood before him. He slipped around the corner and in a matter of seconds had unbarred all the doors. When the first head emerged from a half-open door, he could not credit it as human. It was a ball of matted hair that seemed entirely without a face. The head was followed by a body so emaciated as to be no more than a loose sack of skin and bones. The creature, for he found hard to call it a man, was pale in the moonlight, the body bare save for a crude loincloth covering its sex. In seconds, another face emerged. This one was black as night, skin striped with the white scars of countless whippings. Then other bodies poured swiftly, silently from cells that looked too small to hold them. The smell of rotten filth that emerged with them made him want to retch. Some of men ran toward the fields as though the devil himself was at their heels, others turned toward the remaining barracks. Doors were flying open at two other structures when Ben heard the first shouts of alarm from the guards. When he turned toward them he could see strong well-fed men chasing prisoners from building to building and into the cane, now sure that there would be enough distraction to cover his movements. Ben slipped back into the darkness, determined to follow the perimeter of the buildings until he reached the largest house. Once he arrived at his destination, Ben saw a pair of doors thrown open on the second floor of the two-story, U-shaped plantation house. The doors opened onto a balcony that faced the rest of the compound, now in pandemonium. Vines led from the ground up to the balcony making a convenient entrance to the house. He slipped through the doors and found himself in a dark bedroom. In the moonlight he could make out a man hunched over the shape of a woman, body coiling and uncoiling at an uneven tempo. When he heard the woman cry out, he lost all reason, crossed the room in three strides and jerked the man from the bed onto the floor. He put his blade to the man's throat. Yes? The man demanded, not the least worried by the weapon. Voy a matarte. Where is Lucas? Ben barked in English. Tell me or I will kill you. I am Lucas. How did you come to me like this? The man was overweight but strong, a soldier gone to seed. Ben could see his eyes shift in the silver moonlight. He was clearly planning an attack. Where is my sister? Ben looked toward the bed, saw the huddled shape. Corwin? Is that you? The girl sat up. Her hair was black, her skin white, but she was older than Corwin, had a longer face and brown eyes. Ben's heart sank. He had come all this way and Corwin was not here. While Ben's attention was diverted Lucas threw a meaty foot into his knee. The crack of bone breaking sounded like gunfire and Ben felt his body strike the smooth wood floor through a white haze of pain. Where is my sister? You bought her. Where is she? What are you talking about? Lucas stepped back into the darkness. Dujols. You bought my sister from Francois Dujols. Ben struggled into a lopsided crouch, aware his knee would not hold his weight. Where is she? What have you done with her? There was silence for a moment, then a sharp laugh. You want the English puta? You are her brother? Jesu Christo. What stupid people you are. Where is she? Ben demanded again. Did he think? Along with the man who tried to sell her to me. Lucas said. After a moment's thought, he continued. If he would have married her, you and he would be brothers. He laughed again. Stepping back into the moonlight pouring through the open door, Lucas kicked him in the head. Too bad for us both, says dead. No? But worse for you than for me, I think. 
Hidden away on Devon's island, Corwin became stronger, her skin growing golden as it captured the sunlight. Her mind was lost in a similar lassitude. What difference would it make if she fought her fate? She could rave at her abductor, her lover, and it would serve no purpose. He was a man used to taking what he wanted, to seeing people as property that could be owned, and she lived in his world. As he had suggested long ago, she would accept the few pleasures that life afforded. She would stop thinking about the sacrifices she had made and the people she had left behind. From the large window in Black's room she could watch the activity aboard his ship. She saw the men strip it from stem to stern as they prepared it for its next voyage. She watched Black scale the rigging, use the long ropes to fly from mast to mast, and lower long heavy sheets to the deck for repair. She saw his men obey his instructions like a small army, moving as one from task to task, and found herself wishing she could serve beside them. How different a world they lived in. At night he would order the men off the ship and into the houses that surrounded the wharf. Corwin could see women going out to meet the men, like the women of her village had come to meet their fishermen when they returned from the sea. She watched the young children leap into their father's arms, their small arms wrapping around thick necks and heads falling to broad shoulders. Black had created a tiny town here, a sanctuary for his crew. The time had come to visit Maria. Her children brought Corwin food every day, took away laundry, and did what little cleaning could be done in a fortress made of stone and dirt. As she walked down the long hill Corwin wondered what she would say. Could she explain why it had taken her so long to visit? Would Maria wonder that she lived with Black so openly? Perhaps Black had kept other women here and thus Maria would understand her position. That thought ached inside her. Where was that woman? Where were all the women he had loved before her? What would become of her when he was tired of the toy she had become? Feeling someone's eyes upon her, Corwin looked up to see Devon watching her from the highest spar of the tallest mast of the ship. He was king of all he surveyed. Buenos dias. I am very glad you have come, Maria said. She placed her basket upon the ground and rose, gesturing at the dozen or so women and twenty children that were exiting homes to surround them. I tell my friends how beautiful you are, Corwin blushed. She had not expected to see so many people or to be viewed with such obvious curiosity. I came to thank you for taking care of me, she said. As she looked around at the little village of women and children, she marveled at how many there were. Fifty pairs of eyes of every color, people of every shade, were around her now. She looked around to include them all as she said, You made me feel so welcome here, because you are very welcome. Come and sit inside out of the sun. She rose and led Corwin inside the house, leaving the crowd outside to gossip about the stranger they had seen. As she entered the small home, Corwin saw that was a pair of rooms, once separated from the other by a heavy blanket. She saw hammocks hung flat against the wall, and hooks that they must be connected to at night so the children would have a place to sleep. There was a table and a half-dozen chairs, and while Corwin watched Maria poured watered rum into earth and cups, Maria sat and gestured to Corwin who took a seat as well. I am glad to see you, said Maria, glancing up to give Corwin a smile. I worry you still sick, but the children I know. I am much better. You strong and brown now. You look happy. Corwin thought of her long afternoons with Black, the swimming and passionate games they played. Was the change in her so obvious? To avoid further discussion, she gestured at the hammocks. You have more children. Yes, said Maria with a smile. That all you know. Then Moro, Efor and Miguel six, and a new one on the way. She patted her belly, only a little heavy, then paused to study Corwin. A new? Startled for a long moment, Corwin said nothing, 
not sure if she understood what the woman was trying to communicate. Then she blushed and shook her head. Your older children are so kind, like their father, said Maria, obviously pleased. A very strong, very proud, but gentle. How did you meet him? Corwin asked, suddenly eager to know more of Maria's past. How had she come to this place? Maria's face became somber, and she avoided meeting Corwin's eyes as she replied. My man saved me from the fathers. They were hurting me but they stopped them. Then they bring me here. I am so sorry. I should not have asked such a question, said Corwin. She remembered that Maria had not spoken kindly of the priests. It had been a mistake to call them to mind now. Maria shook her head. No. It is no matter. The fathers were devils not men of God. But still they serve this purpose. Because of them I have my man and my children, I think of tomorrow not the past. You are very wise. Moments later Maria eyed the sunlight pouring through the door, and stood. She began bustling around, mixing meal water and lard to create a thick dough. She led Corwin outside to a large wood-burning oven with a big flat iron top. She flattened the balls of dough and put them on the iron, then deftly flipped them over when they were browned on one side. She handed one to Corwin who bounced the hot bread gingerly from hand to hand. It tastes as much better hot I think, said Maria with a smile. Eat and say. Corwin followed her advice and felt the bread melt in her mouth. Maria laughed and offered Corwin a ball of dough. Together they cooked it on the big iron grid. As the day began to fade more women came to join them, all sharing the same cooking iron, all laughing as they deftly cooked tortillas, bread, slices of chicken, and goat. When Black came to collect Corwin she had the dinner she had made for both of them wrapped in banana leaves. She offered him a still hot tortilla, then led the way back up the hill to the fortress. He spoke as he followed behind. I should let you mingle with the other women more often. It seems to please you. Can you tell me about Maria? Asked Corwin. How did she come here? Black took his time in replying, lifting a branch so she could step under it without ducking. It is not a pleasant story. Her family was killed by Spanish soldiers. She was taken, along with the five other children that survived the massacre of her village, to one of the Spanish encampments. She was handed over to the priests. When Miguel found her, she was tied up and the fathers were raping her. She was all of twelve. He rescued her, asked Corwin, after killing the lot of them. Somehow they made their way to Barbados. He signed aboard our crew with the proviso the girl could come with him. We agreed since our next port of call was here. He set her up with a house and a few years later, four or five, they married. I said the words and they jumped over a broom for good measure. A child has arrived every year since. He loves her. Love is an awkward word everywhere. It's ephemeral like lust, desire, and passion. A romantic word that belongs in French books. Maria and her husband are devoted to one another. Would die for one another. I think it is true to say they cannot live without one another. I do not think that is what most people mean when they speak of love. Corwin was silent as they entered the house and walked up to the stairs to the room they shared, setting her bundle upon the table. Corwin shook her head as Black began to strip of his sweat-soaked clothes so he could bathe in the scented water Maria's children had left in a ewer for him. She struggled to understand what Black had said to her. Lightning had struck her the moment she'd seen him, and he'd as much as confessed he felt something as well. Undeniably they shared lust, a demand for one another that verged on pure madness. And yet he had described passion as ephemeral. He had said love was ephemeral. A word for French books. Would he be loyal to her? Was he devoted to her? Could he live without her? He had never spoken of such things. 
he had never asked her to make an oath to him nor offered her one in return. As she began laying out the food, he came to stand behind her, stroking her long hair. When she was done with the food he kissed her shoulder, and took his seat at the table. He dressed and his hair was spiky from the quick wash. He seemed rested, happy, content, and entirely at ease. And apparently entirely unaware of the fears he had stirred in her. Ben watched the overseer shove the native girl down into the mud between the forest of head-high cane. For the most part women did not serve in the fields, they were too weak to till the soil or to cut the cane. In fact, female slaves did not last long even when they were kept out of the fields. They usually died from rape and repeated beatings within days of their arrival. This particular overseer seemed to enjoy having women brought to him in the fields, as though the sound of their cries might be music to the men around him. As the six-foot blonde brute fumbled with his breeches, Ben stepped closer, then crouched. The girl was kneeling, a hank of her hair held in a hairy white hand. Turning his machete on its side, Ben slid it through three feet of cane, jabbing the girl in the thigh. She looked down and jumped back as if stung. The overseer took her movement as defiance and clouted her across the head. Ben saw that she fell toward the blade, the worn band of a braided whip cut deeply into Ben's shoulder. Instinctively his hands flew to his head, warding off another blow. Get up, lazy English, or if you do the dot. Manny, one of the many Spanish guards who marched the slaves through the fields and oversaw their work, put another burning stripe across Ben's back to emphasize the order. Ben made a show of favoring his bad knee as he rose. Manny was not as bad as some of the guards. He had given Ben some extra food once for showing his crew how to keep the cut cane on the carts without using rope. On another occasion he had allowed Ben to set another slave's broken arm. Ben turned his head as he stood up, tried to see how matters stood with the girl. The overseer had his sex near the girl's mouth. He saw that she had the blade gripped in hands white with tension. It was poised between the man's legs. Once on his feet, Ben kept his back turned to Manny so the man would not notice that his blade was missing. The howl to his right cut off Manny's next insult. Ben shouted, Sapienti, Sapienti, stepping through the grass toward the screaming man. The tropical cane fields were filled with a viper the local Indians called the two-step snake. It killed so quickly that there was rarely time for man to do more than call out before he was dead. The snakes would actively search for other victims after a bite, striking through the stalks at legs that came too close. Ben could hear the cane around him explode as slaves and guards alike fled the area. A moment later Ben was crouched over the dying overseer. The slice through the man's thigh had cut through an artery and blood pulsed onto the ground with every heartbeat. The girl held the machete up as if to ward him off, eyes scared but determined. Corale, he whispered in Spanish, hoping she knew the language. Run. Via Asu Hente. Go to your people. He pointed away from the plantation and toward the jungle westward. Why died? The girl dropped the blade. She followed the direction of his hand and gasped. Then she darted into the stalks, brown legs flashing in the uneven light. Ben retrieved his weapon and set off to the north where he knew the plantation landing to be. Dressed in rags, hair and beard matted into dark clumps, he knew he had little chance of remaining unrecognized as a slave. There was still less hope that he would happen to find a ship at the dock. On the other hand, being killed on the run was better than spending another night in that hellhole with four men even more desperate than he was. His leg, and the sharp cough he had inherited from a fellow prisoner, would make progress slow, but he was determined to escape if he could. The guards caught him before he was a mile away. He heard the dogs barking first, saw the cane wave as the animals raced through it like rats. Human voices echoed the dogs. 
They came toward him from every part of the field, guided first by the hounds, then by Ben's own frantic movements. As was always the case with an escaped slave, the dogs brought him down before the men arrived. He killed a few using his machete, but more followed. Their teeth tore into his arms and legs, dragging at chunks of skin as though they meant to pull him apart. Manny reached him first. English. English. Are you under all this blood? He sent the dogs away with some well-placed kicks, then dragged Ben to his feet. Ui you to run? You no like it here? Hard as it was, Ben mastered enough strength to spit in Manny's face. Manny backhanded him by way of response, then hauled him to his feet again. You my special friend English. You smart. Kill the man. Then call out snake. He like that. He prodded Ben into movement with the tip of his machete. He got new job English. Now I am the game boss. He laughed and shoved Ben forward when he stumbled. You my lucky Englishman. He will keep you with me if you live. When they cleared the field, Manny used a whip to drive him into a limping run back to the barracks. Every step he took jarred his damaged leg, and he fell several times only to be jerked once again to his feet by the laughing Spaniard. When they returned to camp, Manny shoved him into a half-buried wood box that sat near the middle of the plantation. Manny stuck his round face into the box just before he closed the lid. Ben recoiled from his fetid breath and broken teeth. You stay alive, English. Three days without food and water, trapped in the box exposed to the searing sun, drove Ben to the limits of his sanity. He screamed for hours the second day, begging for death and throwing his body over and over again against the wood of his tiny prison. How many men had died here? He could smell them in the heat, their sweat was trapped in the wood forever. On the third day, mute, thirsty beyond description, pain itself kept him alive, preventing him from sinking into sleep and perhaps into death. When the lid to the box was opened, he lifted his eyes to find Manny hovering above him. You alive English? You want out of the box? He used the handle of his whip to push a lock of sweaty hair about his eyes. Ben managed a weak nod. You never run away again, right? Ben nodded again. Then he let you live English. You remember? He no kill you because you lucky for me. You got me new job. Now we make you lucky. Ben nodded once more. He would do or say anything to leave this living grave behind, would sell his soul for a sip of water. How do you go English? Manny hefted Ben out of the box with one arm, his stubby hands biting into the festering dog bites. He dragged Ben across the compound into one of the small rooms reserved for guards and dropped him onto a pallet of hay covered with a worn cotton cloth. If someone don't take care of you. You keep it if you like. He closed the wooden door behind him, leaving Ben in utter darkness. When he returned Manny had an Indian girl by the arm and carried a candle that gave off less illumination than smoke. He placed the candle on the floor then shoved the girl forward. She held a chunk of old bread and an earthen container in her hands. After surveying the scene, Manny kicked him in the foot. Remember. Next time you go in box, you not come out. Then he was gone. For a moment, no one moved. Ben was too tired and too ill to sit up, and the girl seemed so frightened that she would not look at him. Finally, Ben managed a croak. He was trying to ask for water, but his tongue was too swollen to frame words. The girl raised her eyes to his, it was the Indian girl he had tried to help. When she recognized him she dropped to her knees at his side. With shaking hands she poured water on his lips, then as his mouth opened wider, onto his tongue. Her dark hair spilled around them like a curtain, and her soft hands felt his forehead. When he had consumed half the water in the jug, she made him stop. She took bread and dipped it in the water, then placed it on his tongue. 
Soft as it was he could hardly swallow it. In under an hour, Ben felt well enough to attempt conversation. Thank you. He croaked. At her confused look, he said it again in Spanish. To this she nodded. There were so many things he wanted to ask her. Why had she not escaped? How had they caught her? But he did not know even enough Spanish to ask the questions, much less understand her answers. He would have to settle for something less ambitious. What is your name? He said, struggling to speak above a whisper. She shook her head. With an effort he raised his hand to his chest, tapped it. Ben. He said. She patted her own chest and said. Mea. He wondered if that were her Indian name or some appellation the men in the camp had applied. He hoped he lived long enough to find out. Maya made him drink more of the water, and eat most of the remaining bread. Then she rose and collected the candle and brought it closer to the cot. She examined the dog bites with great care. Using a corner of the thin blanket that covered him, she bathed the wounds, then washed his face. Just as he was dropping off to sleep, he felt her lie down at his side. Manny visited Ben often as he recovered. Sometimes he brought food or wine, often he brought items like more candles or worn blankets. After about a week, when Ben was capable of sitting up unaided, he brought other things. How are you my lucky English? You look better. He dropped new clothes, a whip and a knife onto the floor by the pallet. When you think you're ready for work? Too startled to speak, Ben said nothing. Now you be a jefe. You make the slave work. Ben stared at the weapon with revulsion. Manny sat back on his heels, pensive. You are smart man English, but you stupid. There are only two sides to the whip. You take candle or you take sting. Which you want? He held it out again. Ben forced himself to take the handle. Good. You have now. You drink, you eat, you keep your woman. You no slave. Can I leave? Ben asked, knowing the answer before he heard it. Manny's broad face flushed red dark eyes becoming beady. Oh, you want to leave, English. He make you lucky and now you want to leave. I will stay, said Ben with a sigh. You are a good friend to me. I will stay with you. Manny smiled, face relaxing with satisfaction. In two days you go to work, English. He patted Ben on the leg. You smart English, so you make me smart. You help me. I help you. Ben nodded, manufactured a smile. It seemed that he had just jumped from a prisoner in hell to one of its chief administrators. On a day, not long after Corwin began visiting Maria and the other women that lived at the foot of the hill, Black woke her in the blue pre-dawn. As he touched her, possessed her, she realized her body had begun to change. Her breasts were larger, tender, her belly felt full. The knowledge that she was with child washed over her like a cold wave. She was not surprised, when that evening at dinner, Black recognized a change in her. What is wrong with you? He demanded over a late dinner sitting near the edge of the cliff that overlooked their lagoon. Under a dark sky filled with an uncountable number of brilliant stars, they shared a lamp-lit supper. Corwin made no reply. Instead she lay back and stared up at the sky. This is the most successful ploy yet. He said. Corwin turned to look at him. I do not know what you are talking about. I want to know what are you keeping from me, said Black. He could feel a gulf opening between them again, pushing them farther apart second by second. He cared for her too much. He had to remember he could not keep her. Someday, somehow, she would have to go home. And yet, to consider her departure was to stand at the edge of an abyss, he shook himself. Love, infatuation, desire, lust, all words for the same fleeting passion. Someday he would stop wanting her. Then he would carry her home where she said she wanted to be. Tell me what you are thinking, Corwin, 
still staring at the sky, said, I had believed my home the most beautiful place in all the world until I came here, my lord, turning her head to meet Black's eyes, she said, now, I am not so sure, Black raised his glass at the compliment. Cornwall, close to his father's lands in Devon, had always been beyond his reach. He had heard of its mysterious coastline, dark with hundreds of ships lost in the rough waters. Tin mines and fairy circles, witchcraft and magic. He could only imagine what a striking place it must be. I come from a place near Land's End, Corwin said after a time. It is a small town. There are not very many people, and those that live there make their living from the sea. She turned to regard Black with distant eyes. The legend is that one of my forefathers was a pirate who purchased respectability. He married a lord's daughter and he built her a house. Some say they died in each other's arms. Poetic. Black offered uncomfortably. He wanted to know more and yet he could hear the longing in her voice. Storms come up suddenly, sweeping in off the sea with the fury of the devil himself. Corwin continued. A sunny afternoon can fade into a violent night, thunder and lightning filling the sky, wind driving the waves into huge peaks that sweep fishing boats right out of the harbors. Corwin trailed off. When she spoke again, her voice was unsteady. I was hoping one day you might see it, Black did not reply. He had no future if she left him. The days without her would stretch forward into a grey, meaningless, eternity. Why could not he demand some happiness from the world when it had demanded so much of him? Corwin lay in the cradle of Black's arms, fighting off the feeling of grief that had come after their love-making, pregnant, she knew she had to leave Black, leave his island and make the long journey home. She was determined to bear her child at Chase Manor, in a place where those he grew up with would love him as much as she did, she knew fate had already taken a hand in her affairs. Black had announced after dinner that he would be setting sail for New England in less than a week. He had offered to take a letter to her brother, though she had been forced to promise that it would contain no mention of Black or of the island. Corwin had accepted his proposal, penning the letter with tears in her eyes. She could only imagine what Ben would think when he saw it. He would believe that she had returned from the dead. She finished the missive with the line. I hope that we may soon meet at Chase. My heart yearns to see you. Black had scowled at this, his features darkening. He may believe you home, or on your way there, if you end this way. He pointed out. Am I not on my way home my lord? Corwin asked innocently. I thought I had something to hope for. Black had responded by kissing her fiercely. Not for some time yet my lady. Now, lost in the smell of him the feel of her flesh against his, Corwin forced herself to consider how she would sail with his ship, she could stow away when the provisions were loaded, but it would be difficult to get on board the ship without an accomplice, when Black made port to deliver her letter, she would also need help to escape, it would not be simple to leave the ship without being seen, Black, seeming to sense her thoughts, shifted in his sleep, pulling her closer, a moment later, Corwin knew he was awake, listening to the sound of her breathing, what is wrong? he asked, voice almost to whisper, nothing, said Corwin, I cannot sleep, something is wrong, I am thinking about home again, said Corwin softly, about the rain, and the moor, and a bay a few miles from my house, I am remembering my bedroom, and the way sun would pour into it in the morning, I am recalling the parents and brothers who loved me, the brother who loves me still, love has a meaning where I come from, quiet, said Black, his voice, though still a whisper, carried a command, do not try to stir my sympathies. I will not be wild. Corwin sat up, the moon bathing her flesh with silver light. Thank you I do not know that. What can have made you into such a beast? She turned to look at him. You can be almost human at times, and then you will say something terrible. I miss my family. 
You are going to Virginia but you will not carry me with you. Instead I am to remain here. Black propped his head up with his hand. I had almost forgotten that you had a temper. Once you promised me that you would tell me about your past. I want to hear the story now. I have a right to know who holds me prisoner, said Corwin, disregarding his words. Are you my prisoner? Do prisoners have rights? So many interesting ideas in so few words, said Black. Then, with a shrug, he went on. There's no reason you should not know the whole story, but I pray you not impute any great meaning to what you hear. These experiences have not made me the man I am. I survived because I am the cold creature you see before you. So you mean that if you had been someone else, you would have died? This I can easily believe, knowing she would one day tell this tale to Devon's child, she waited. When Devon spoke it was in a tone he might have used to discuss the chicken they had for dinner or the heat of the day. My uncle, sensibly enough, found the order of his birth an inconvenience. He therefore arranged to have my father and mother killed. As you might expect he wanted me dead as well. However, the man assigned to murder me found it more lucrative to sell me as a child of five or six into indenture. I am sure he was paid for a murder he didn't bother to commit. Black paused here, then sighed. I served time as cabin boy on a trader, then after an argument with the captain my indenture was sold to a cane plantation. I grew up there under the lash like every other slave. He stopped as if remembering something terrible. I escaped, spent six months on an English navy ship, then skipped to a slave vessel. There I served as third mate, then first. When the last captain became too much of an inconvenience I led a mutiny. I became a pirate and one day had the resources I needed to settle the score with my uncle and reclaim my title. He stopped, lost in thought. Then I met you. He waited for her judgment. That is a terrible journey to have made. I am very sorry for that little boy you were. He most certainly deserved better, said Corwin. She could almost see the dark-haired child cowering in the hold of a fowl rat-infested ship bound for the new world. You are too forgiving. You will find Evervillain has his sad story. I am responsible for every action I have taken. I am the man I choose to be. Is that so? Well, you punished me for the crimes of another. You took me captive on the high seas. And you hold me here. Can you choose now to be someone else? Black stared at her with obsidian eyes. You might have chosen at any time to be the man your parents would have wanted you to be. You are strong and you have the power to set things right as well as to seize what you want. Will you ever make that choice my lord? Or will you always be the man your uncle made you? This is meaningless prattle. I know the creature who lies in my arms at night and the woman I have thrice rescued at great risk. To thine own self be true, my lady. Corwin stared at him, knowing what he said was true. For the last months, she had not been a prisoner here. She had been his lover in truth. But now she was with child, and she could not tell him for fear that he might keep the child when he discarded her. Or what if he kept them both forever on this island? What kind of life would that be? Waiting for months for him to come home from the sea. And what if one day he lost his life in a storm or in battle? What would become of her and his child then? The time had at last come for them to part. For her to escape. Not because she didn't love him but because she would do anything on earth to give his child the security and love every child deserved. She put her back to him and he pulled her close. She knew he would see her acquiescence as conceding his point. But his words had only hardened her heart. Devon would live forever in the past, and she had to give her child a future.
Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart. Voice recording copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Music by Alexander Schweif licensed from Pond5. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart. Voice recording copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Music by Alexander Schweif licensed from Pond 5. <laughs> 